Well, good evening, Hellas Church. It's good to see you tonight. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors with our church. I'm focused uh, primarily up at our North Expression in Edmonds, but it is always uh, a privilege to be back with you here in Fremont in this way as we open our Bibles today to, to Ruth chapter 3 as we continue this journey through this little four-chapter book in the Old Testament. Well, we're kind of in the home stretch now, right, heading uh, into Christmas. Many by now are fully immersed in all that Christmas seems to be about to so many people in our culture, right? Christmas shopping, Christmas wrapping, Christmas music and, and decorations, Christmas cheer. And these things, of course, are good things. They can be very good things. But the truth is that people all around us in our culture get quite caught up in the, in the commotion concerning Christmas without ever slowing down long enough to truly consider why they're doing what they're doing. Many don't give a second thought or care to what Christmas is truly all about and uh, what it is they're actually celebrating when December 25th rolls around each year. And friends, contrary to popular opinion, what Christmas is all about, it's not about shopping, it's not about Santa Claus, it's not about how many presents you can fit under a tree, it's about hope. It's about the hope of the gospel that God would uh, come to us in Jesus, and he would uh, make a way for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection, not based on who we are or what we do, but based on who he is and what he's done for us. Christmas is about hope, the hope that ultimately everything wrong in this world and in our hearts in due time will be made right. It's about the hope that a future awaits us as followers of Jesus that should electrify our hearts and empower our lives right now. That's what Christmas offers. That's what the hope of Christmas offers. So are you taking hold of that today? Or are you getting caught up in the commotion concerning Christmas? As human beings, we need hope in every way. We need it more than we even realize. We can live for two to three minutes without air, we can live for about seven days without water. We can live for, believe it or not, almost 45 days or so without food. But we cannot live for a, a single moment without at least some form of hope. We are hope-based creatures in every way. We're all looking for it. We're all longing for it. And at times, we're even lunging for it because deep down, we need it. We need it to push through and to press forward in this life. And so the question then is not so much do you have hope today, because you do. The question is who or what are you putting your hope in? And can you trust it to come through for you in what you're asking of it? In many ways, the story of Ruth is a, it's a story about hope, about hope uh, being restored in the hearts and the lives of God's people, two of God's people in particular, through his gracious provision of one who would redeem them. Now, if you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks as we've moved through the first couple of chapters of the, the book of Ruth, let me take a moment here just to uh, get us all on the same page. In chapter one, we met this woman named Naomi whose life was uh, coming undone in every way. Naomi and her family were struck by a series of tragedies uh, while living in a place called Moab. And as a result, Naomi, she lost her husband. She lost her two adult sons. 
She lost all the security and the safety and the hope that family provided to a person, especially a woman, in that time and in that place. To be a widow back then, you see, could be a very dangerous and difficult thing. And, and here in this story, we have three of them, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, all widowed, all wondering what their futures might hold. And everything that had happened was very much taking its toll on Naomi, and uh, understandably so. In chapter one, Naomi described her life as bitter and empty, and at some level, she was pointing fingers and she was placing blame on God for how her life was going. She said in Ruth chapter one, verse 19, the Lord's hand has turned against me. He has opposed me and he has afflicted me, she said. So this is a woman weighed down by the circumstances of her life, wrestling through her faith and, and losing hope in a very real and a very raw way. One thing she wasn't losing and hadn't lost, though, was her daughter-in-law, Ruth. At some point, after all the devastation of losing her loved ones, Naomi decided to leave Moab and to uh, return to her people in Bethlehem, where she and her husband were, were from. And her plan originally was to go it alone, so she told her two daughters-in-law that they should uh, return to their own families and seek their own safety and their own uh, security in Moab, where they were from. Naomi was quite insistent, in fact, that they part ways, and one did, Orpah did, but her daughter-in-law, Ruth, refused. Ruth refused to turn her back on Naomi, but instead, uh, listen to what uh, Ruth says to Naomi back in uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. She says, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And so you see, through all this, through it all, Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, had become a believer in the God of Israel. At times, God uses even the most dark and desperate seasons of our lives to uh, awaken our hearts to, to Him and, and to draw near to us and to create to create faith within us where there was none before. He did it with me in my own life, that's to be sure. Perhaps he's done it with you in your life too. Perhaps he intends to do that with you even today. Out of terrible tragedy, God was weaving into the life of this Moabite widow named Ruth his greatest gift, bringing this foreign woman by his grace into his kingdom and into his family. Ruth says to Naomi, your God is now my God, your people are my people, and wherever you're going, I'm going too. So the two of them, they pack up, they make the trek from Moab to Bethlehem. It's about a seven to 10 day trip on, by foot, and they're facing a very uncertain future, but in every way seeking a new and better situation, in every way looking and longing for hope in God's place and uh, among God's people, the Israelites. And in chapter two last week, we saw God giving them the glimmer of hope that they were looking for once they had arrived in Bethlehem. After they arrived, Ruth, she took the initiative. She didn't sit back and wait. She was uh, determined to make things happen and to, to create an opportunity that would provide for her and Naomi's immediate needs. And so she ventured out looking to 
see if she could find a field in the area where she might gather some grain for the, for the two of them to eat. And in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, we were, told that, uh, we were told that it just so happened, it just so happened that Ruth found herself on the field of a wealthy, single landowner named Boaz, a man who it just so happens was a, was a relative. He was part of the extended family to which Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, belonged. It just so happened, we were told. And we talked about this a bit last week. Pastor Bryant uh, talked about this. Was that coincidence? Was that luck? Or was that the hidden hand of our God working providentially and purposefully in the lives of his people? And we're going to keep asking those same questions today as we go too. And Boaz was very gracious towards Ruth when, he showed, when she showed up on his land. He seemed to be looking out for her in chapter two. He allowed her to gather, gather grain on his fields with his other workers. He let her join in some of their uh, meals. He provided some level of protection even for her. And it's because of this, it's because of this man, Boaz, that Naomi and Ruth were able to get by. They had food on the table and some level of hope uh, being rekindled and restored in their hearts and lives because of the kindness and the generosity extended to them through this man named Boaz. And so week after week throughout the harvest season, Ruth was out in Boaz's fields, uh, working hard, gathering grain, meeting the immediate needs of her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Things seemed to be going pretty well for her, uh, well, well, uh, well for them in that regard. But in the final verse of chapter two last week, we were told that the harvest season was coming to a close. And because the harvest season was coming to a close, so was their, so was their source of food and so was their, uh, their source of hope, really, for getting through the next season of their lives. And so as we consider what Naomi and Ruth were going to do next, now that the harvest season was winding down, we find ourselves turning the page into chapter three of the book of Ruth. But one last thing before we get there. It should be said that along the way up to this point, one thing seemed clear, and that is Boaz had definitely taken a certain notice of Ruth. He was helping her. He was protecting her. He seemed to be going out of his way to, to serve her and to, and to look out for her. And Ruth was incredibly grateful toward Boaz, overwhelmed, in fact, by his favor and his kindness that he was showing to her. We saw that last week in chapter 2. But we were not told anything explicit about what might have been going on, if anything at all, between the two of them. It did not seem that anything had happened. No romance is mentioned. Uh, Boaz has evidently not made any moves in Ruth's direction and vice versa. This little book of Ruth is indeed a love story, as we'll see, but the storytelling up to this point has been uh, very subtle, and we've been left to to wonder and to kind of read between the lines about Boaz and Ruth and whether something was stirring between them and whether God had plans for these two. But all that subtlety is about to go out the window in today's chapter. Ruth chapter three, you see, is the climactic turning point in this story. And you may, you may want to buckle up for a bit because things are going to get a bit dicey here as Naomi and Ruth too, they're going to they're going to kind of turn up the temperature on this chapter here in some pretty surprising ways. And we're going to draw three points out of this text today as we go. 
And the first point is uh, that we're going to see a questionable scheme being devised by Naomi, a questionable scheme devised. In the first couple of verses of chapter 3, we read this. We read that Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? And that word rest in verse 1, it means security. It means stability. It means quite literally the type of security and the type of stability that a Jewish woman in that day hoped to find and longed to find in a, in a loving and faithful husband. And so that sentence, that verse there, what that is, that's Hebrew, you see, for Ruth, you need a man. You need a husband. That's what Naomi is saying there. Ruth had secured food for them in the short term, but now apparent, apparent, uh, Naomi was apparently intending to secure family for them for the long term. And then in verse 2, we see exactly who Naomi has in mind for this. She says, now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? And you see where this is headed, right? This is Naomi, the somewhat scheming mother-in-law, saying, oh, that Boaz, he's a very nice man, a very good man, a very stable man. Don't you think? He's a very good catch. Naomi, she's deciding to play matchmaker here, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a fine thing. Her motives are commendable here, I think, but her methods and her counsel, as we're going to see, much less so. Listen to the plan she comes up with in verses 2 to 4. She says, This evening he, he being Boaz, will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he is lying. Go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. And so how's that for a plan? What do you think of that plan? Before you decide what you think, let me tell you a little bit about the threshing floor. After the growing season was all done, all the barley and the, the wheat in the fields would be cut, it would be gathered and bundled together, and they would, be, uh, they would be taken to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor is where the kernels of grain, which you wanted, would be separated from the things that you didn't want, the chaff and the, the husks and that sort of thing. And it was a very time-intensive and a very labor-intensive process. And now the most optimal location for a threshing floor was typically a rock uh, outcropping of sorts on an exposed area on the top of a hill. And the reason that was optimal, because the surface was hard, it was a rock surface with no dirt. They could gather the grain and sweep it into piles uh, efficiently. In addition, it, being on top of a hill, the winds were uh, optimal for this process to be carried out. And so the threshing floor that uh, Naomi was referring to probably would have been nearby, but, but separate from the fields where these crops had been grown, and also separate, most likely, from uh, the, the town of Bethlehem itself. And many of the men who worked the threshing floor would stay there and sleep on the threshing floor too at night to, um, to guard things, to guard their profit from thieves and from animals. You see, all the grain that would be present in the threshing area, it represented uh, a lot of money. It represented much wealth. And at threshing time, all the workers uh, knew that their big payday was, 
was imminent. It was right in front of them. And at night on the threshing floor after the work was done, these men, they would raise their glasses, so to speak. They would uh, get pretty lively and all sorts of shady things were known to go down on the threshing floor at night. There would be much drinking and debauchery and depravity in many cases. Prostitutes were known to turn up on the threshing floor at night to offer up a good time because they knew that's where the money and where the liquor would be flowing. This is the threshing floor, and this is where Naomi tells Ruth she should go after dark, all dressed up and smelling nice, to to sneak up and to lie down next to a sleeping man and to wait for him to to tell her what to do. I got to tell you, as a father of a 24-year-old daughter, this plan concerns me a great deal. It's like telling my daughter to get dressed up, to go down to the club, to keep an eye on that guy from a distance. Wait till he has a few drinks and then make your move. He will tell you what to do. I'm sure he will. There are sexually charged overtones in some of the language here used by the narrator, narrator, but there's also much ambiguity at the same time. It's very intentional and very skillful storytelling, I believe, and, and we're seeing, we're supposed to be seeing a certain tension being built and created here by the narrator. And even if Naomi's motives were commendable in all this, which they seemed to be, her methods seemed highly questionable and even even dangerous. There seemed to be much more that might go wrong with Naomi's plan than what might go right. And let's not forget, the story of Ruth was taking place during the time of Judges. It's a time when the people of Israel had uh, largely turned their backs on God and were doing what was right in their own eyes. Naomi knew it was dangerous out there in the field. She had already said so back in chapter two, and she would have also known that it was even more so. It was even more dangerous on the threshing floor for a a young woman in the middle of the night. And yet now that's where this same Naomi was sending her her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And Ruth, she didn't, presumably didn't have to go along with this, right? Ruth could have shut this down. She was under no obligation to agree to Naomi's questionable plan. But in verse five, look at what Ruth says. She uh, says, so Ruth said to Naomi, I will, I will do everything that you say. And so what do you think about all this? What do you think about Naomi's relationship advice here and her plan? Good plan? Foolish plan? Dangerous plan? Commentators are actually pretty mixed on this. Some think it was a terrible plan. I seem to lean in that direction. Some say Naomi was putting Ruth in a very, a very dangerous and risky situation, and she never should have done it in the first place. But others, others in a minority, I would say, suggest that Naomi and Ruth were showing their trust in God, and they were, they were stepping out in their faith. Some say Naomi and Ruth were so trusting in the sovereignty of God and in the godly character of Boaz, that they were not afraid to take this risk because that's what faith is, right? Taking risks and trusting God with, with the results. We all want certainty. We all want security. We all want hope. But sometimes we go after it in the wrong ways and we need to be very careful with this. God had been providing for Naomi and Ruth through Boaz, but Naomi knew the harvest season was coming to a close, and I think she was getting anxious. I think she thought she needed to kind of force the issue and to to make something happen here. It's not always easy to know, is it, when we should 
when we should wait on the Lord and trust him with his timing, and when we need to do something, when we need to take action, when we even need to take risks in our walk with the Lord. It's easy to grow impatient when things don't seem to be playing out how you want them to or when you want them to. And that's what was happening, I think, with Naomi as she considered her future and the uncertainty of it. Naomi, she decided to take matters into her own hands. She decides that she's going to uh, set the agenda and the timing of things. It would seem she's getting out ahead of God here, putting her hope in herself and in her own plans rather than waiting on the Lord. Picking it up now in verse 6, we go from a very questionable scheme devised by Naomi to a very precarious scene about to develop on the threshing floor in verses 6 to 15. Let's read some of that. It says, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer, she said. And so it's all going down now, apparently, on the threshing floor here. Can you imagine this scene? Put yourself in uh, Ruth's shoes at this point. She's hiding, apparently, in some kind of uh, rock crevice or something where nobody can see her. She's watching Boaz. She's got her eye on him. She's waiting for him to go lie down. And finally, he goes and he lies down and he falls asleep. And Ruth approaches him secretly, it says. She uncovers his feet and she lays down too. And she waits. And we don't know exactly how she laid down or exactly how much of his feet or his legs she uncovered. The language here is intentionally ambiguous, but it's also language that's uh, somewhat charged. It's intended to create a certain tension in the mind of the reader. This is more than just taking a nap at his feet. We don't know if she's laying perpendicular to him, parallel to him, really. What we know based on the language used here, though, is that this was pretty... This was pretty provocative, what Ruth was doing here. And can you imagine Ruth's heart racing as she anticipates the possibilities of what might happen as Boaz wakes up and turns over? Would he rebuke her? Would he take advantage of her? What would he do? What would he tell her to do? Because remember, Naomi told her that Boaz would, would tell her what to do in that moment. And so here we are on the edge of our seats waiting for Boaz to tell Ruth what to do when all of a sudden Ruth, she departs from Naomi's game plan and Ruth, Ruth tells Boaz what to do. Ruth goes off script here. She says in verse nine, take me under your wing. And that phrase in many Bible translations, that phrase is also translated, spread the corner of your garment over me. And this is a phrase that, that is basically, it's, it's basically something that a husband only does for a wife. When Ruth says, take me under your wing, spread your garment over me, she's saying to Boaz, bring your protection over me. Bring me under your care. Bring me near to you. 
You, you may remember last week when Boaz was speaking to Ruth, he was commending her for how she was loving and serving Naomi and providing for her. And in verse uh, 12 of chapter 2, Boaz said to Ruth, he said, May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge, he says. And so in a sense, what Ruth is saying here in chapter 3, verse 9 is, Hey, Boaz, you remember when you prayed that the Lord would spread his wings of protection over me? I'm here to ask you today, Boaz, if you, if you would be the answer to your own prayer. Ruth goes off script here in a pretty significant way. She does uh, far more than Naomi had asked and said. And so it turns out Ruth is no pawn here. She's no pawn in Naomi's plan. She has gone there willingly, and apparently uh, she had a plan of her own. She says to Boaz, in no uncertain terms, cover me, protect me, marry me. And so how in the world did that just happen? A foreigner, a Moabite woman just proposed to an Israelite man, a worker in the field just proposed to the owner of that field. A young and destitute widow just proposed to a wealthy, older businessman. This seems to be breaking all the rules. This was a very risky move, to say the least. But this is also where we all get to breathe a collective sigh of relief as we hear the first words out of Boaz's mouth in verse 10. Listen to what he says. He says, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger man, uh, men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. One, thing's, one, one thing's, uh, thing that's clear here is that uh, while this was not a safe place for, for Ruth to be in the middle of, middle of the night, the first thing Boaz says to her is, is Ruth, you are, you are safe with me. Ruth's actions and words seem to have achieved, I think, her desired effect. Boaz understands her actions and words to mean something much more than, than an invitation to uh, sleep with her. He takes them to be an invitation for marriage. And instead of rebuking her or taking advantage of her, he blesses her. He calls her a woman of worth, a woman uh, of noble character, and that's the very same Hebrew word used uh, earlier by the narrator to describe Boaz, and now Boaz uses that same word and attributes it to Ruth. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, uh, Boaz could have treated Ruth as Moabite trash, scavenging in the garbage cans of Israel and then corrupting the people with her whorish behavior, but with True has said, with true loving kindness and grace, he sees her as a woman equal in status and character to himself. Naomi and even Ruth at some level seem to be getting out ahead of God with their plans to secure hope, but Boaz will see he shows, he shows integrity and he shows uh, restraint in what could have been a very awkward encounter. And you get the sense here that Boaz was surprised that, all of, that of all men, she was actually interested in him. She was actually uh, pursuing him. Guys can be pretty dense about these things at time, times. I know I was with my wife. She had to come out and tell me how she felt about me because I was, I was a little slow on the uptake. 
Ruth says to Boaz, cover me, protect me. And Boaz says, I will do whatever you say. And so it seems this scene on the threshing floor, far from going sideways or blowing up in a terrible way, it seems that things might actually uh, be coming together pretty well. But we're not quite there yet. There is a slight problem. There's an obstacle in the way of things, and we see it in verse 12. Verse 12, yes, it is true, Boaz says, that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up and while it was still dark, then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into the town. So we were just getting to, the, uh, to where things seemed good and things seemed to be coming together, and now we, we find out there's another guy in the picture. Boaz says there's a redeemer closer than I am. And we talked about this redeemer, this family redeemer, also known as a kinsman redeemer. We talked about this uh, over the past couple of weeks. In chapter two, when Naomi uh, learned that Ruth just so happened to be gathering grain on the land of Boaz, uh, Naomi explained to Ruth in, in chapter two, verse 20, that this man, Boaz, he was, a, he was a close relative. In fact, he was one of their family redeemers, she explained. Now, a family redeemer was one of God's provisions in the Old Testament for his people. It was a way to protect and to preserve and to stabilize, really, families and family members within the nation of Israel. And so if a member of an extended family fell on hard times or was struck by tragedy of one sort or another, God put in place this way for a family redeemer, a family member to, to rally around and to rescue, in a sense, the other family member who was hurting or who was helpless or who was hopeless. And so in the case of Ruth, since she was married to Naomi's son, who was part of the family of Elimelech, she too became a member of the same family. And because she had become widowed, it was possible for a member of the Elimelech clan to take her in and to care for her, to stabilize her future, and even to provide offspring to uh, carry forward the deceased person's lineage Boaz was a family redeemer of the Elimelech clan, uniquely qualified and capable of doing uh, this very thing for Ruth, and, and Ruth wanted it to happen, and so did, so did Boaz. But he also knew there was an order to how this worked, and he was not going to usurp the system that uh, God had put into place. There was a certain hierarchy involved, and that's why Boaz in verse 12 says, there is a redeemer closer than I am. But he says, I will go. I will work this out in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that is fine. But, but if he does not, then as the Lord lives, he says, I will, I will do so. There was a certain order to all this. The nearest kin, which was not Boaz, had the opportunity to take her in. And it was only if that person declined to serve as the redeemer that it was possible for another member of the family, in this case, Boaz, to, to take his place. 
And so it seems there will be a bit more suspense in this story before this story ends. We have at this point Ruth sitting there realizing that in the next 24 hours, uh, she's going to be redeemed. She's going to find out who her husband's going to be. She, she wants it to be Boaz, but it might, might not be Boaz. It might be another man who, who she hasn't even yet met. And in verse 14, she got up in the morning, it says, and while it was still dark, Boaz said to her, don't let it be known that you were here on the threshing floor. Boaz was a man focused on what he could give rather than what he could take. And he could have taken Ruth that night, but instead he protected her. He protected her purity. And now we see he's protecting her reputation as well. Don't let anyone see you here on the threshing floor when you leave this place. And so what a remarkable scene this has been to watch develop, a a precarious scene in so many ways. And now as it comes to a close in the final couple of verses, Ruth returns to town and we're going to see her kind of uh, debrief it all with Naomi. We're going to see a hopeful outcome debriefed in the final three verses. Verse 16 She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he will not rest unless he resolves this today, she says. And so as this scene and this chapter, as they, as they come to an end, we find Ruth and Naomi waiting, hopeful. They're very expectant. They're anticipating good news about their Redeemer and about their futures. And we find ourselves, don't we, in a similar spot this week as we look forward to, to what's coming, as we anticipate as we celebrate the good news about our own Redeemer and about our futures with him and with one another. And do you know why Boaz gave all that barley to Ruth as she left the threshing floor? He gave her six measures of barley, a very large quantity. This would have been uh, probably 40 to 50 pounds of barley, it's believed. Boaz said, give this to Naomi so she will not be empty-handed, he said. And you may remember in verse 21 of chapter 1, Naomi was speaking about her life to some friends of hers, and she told these friends, she said, I went away from Bethlehem full, but, I, but she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. And now here is Boaz, by way of this very kind gesture, saying to Naomi that you're Your days of emptiness are over. The narrator in God's sovereign design of this book gives us a picture of Ruth uh, coming back, not just with grain from Boaz, but with a promise from Boaz to redeem their family in one way or another, to redeem not just Ruth, but Naomi too. And he he wanted Naomi to know that. God's providential kindness extended through this man, Boaz was turning things around for Naomi and Ruth and was in every way giving them a reason for hope. And that's what our God does, doesn't he? Again and again, he brings hope to his people in spite of his people. 
through his gracious provision of a chosen redeemer. For Ruth and Naomi, that hope came through Boaz. For you and I, by grace, through faith, that hope comes through Jesus. Before we finish up, just a few observations about this text and what it means for you and I today. One of the great lessons of this passage, I think, is the opportunity it provides us to consider uh, what it should look like to leave God's plans in God's hands for God's timing. Naomi, she struggled with this. She got ahead of God, I think, and took matters into her own hand, hands with the plan that she devised for Naomi, or for Ruth, rather. Naomi's plan, it shows a certain mistrust in allowing God to bring his own plans in his own ways and with his own timing. Boaz, though, he seemed to have a certain instinct and a certain desire not to get ahead of God. He could have taken advantage of that situation. He could have taken advantage of Ruth to serve himself, but he exercised restraint and he waited on the Lord to shine light on the next steps that should be taken. And you know it wasn't easy. You know that in that moment, he had to slow down his heart rate, I'm sure, and give God a chance to display his will. He did not allow his pulse rate to quicken dangerously, so he refused to get caught up in the moment. Now, it should also be said, the narrator does not tell us anything at all here that calls into question the morality or the integrity or the purity of Ruth or Boaz. This scene is intense, that's to be sure. There's no doubt about that. She's laying down next to him in the middle of the night under the, under the stars. The tension was likely very real, but in the midst of a sexually charged setting where the potential for sin and abuse was high, this couple demonstrates honor and integrity and restraint in both their words and their actions toward one another. Neither takes advantage of the other for personal gain or personal gratification. And how refreshing is that? Another thing we can learn here, we always need to remember that many of the things we read in the Bible, they are descriptive, not, not prescriptive. It tells us what happens at times without telling us that it should have happened that way. And that's certainly the case here. And so nothing in this chapter should be seen as permission to take stupid risks or to make bad decisions in your life. Naomi does not offer up the best relationship advice here. And Ruth and Boaz are not entering into this relationship in the best possible of ways either. And the point of this part of the story is not to give us a model of how courtship should take place or how marriage proposals uh, should be made. No, the point of this part of the story is to emphasize that our our God is gracious in spite of us at times and that he's, he's big enough to use even our very bad and foolish decisions for our ultimate good. How many times have you looked back and seen that very thing in your own life? Finally, if you may feel empty or alone today in your life, if, you, if it seems that God is far from you in this season, the story of Ruth reminds us, doesn't it, that he may very well be just setting the stage to, to surprise you with his grace and with, with new hope. In chapter one, with Ruth by her side, Naomi told her friends that she was bitter 
and she was empty and she had nothing. Little did she know that that same woman next to her, the very same Ruth, would become the means through which God would ultimately secure for her a new future and, and a new hope. Be patient, be watchful, be hopeful. And so there you go, Ruth chapter 3. What a story this is becoming. And as this chapter comes to a pretty dramatic close, this is a, the last time, actually, we will hear from Ruth or Naomi. They will not speak again in the book of Ruth. And so the curtain comes down on these two women in need of help and in need of hope as they wait, as they wait expectantly for good news about their Redeemer. Boaz is going to take center stage now and will do so for the rest of the story, but, but the reality is things are not in his hands either or Ruth's hands or Naomi's hands. The whole story is ultimately in the hands of God and it always has been, and so We'll see next Sunday, won't we, what he's going to do next. Let's pray.